Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 89. My guest today is David Danks, who is professor of data science and philosophy at the University of California at San Diego and was previously the L.L. Thurstone Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at Carnegie Mellon University, where he served as the chief ethicist of CMU's Block Center for Technology and Society and co-director of their Center for Informed Democracy and Social Cybersecurity. His book, Unifying the Mind, develops an architecture for cognition based on graphical models. His interests are at the intersection of philosophy, cognitive science, and machine learning, using ideas, methods, and frameworks from each to advance our understanding of complex interdisciplinary problems. He has explored the ethical, psychological, and policy issues around AI and robotics in transportation, healthcare, privacy, and security, and has done significant research in computational cognitive science. The reason I invited him was that I was impressed by his eloquence and clarity as a speaker in making important issues around AI today understandable and accessible to a wide range of people. And if you Google him on YouTube, you'll see what I mean. In this first part, we talked about how he got into AI from a start in philosophy, how machine learning, philosophy, and neuroscience intersect, and how we engage the public in meaningful efforts to make AI safe, ranging from regulation to psychology. Here we go. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. So did you start out in artificial intelligence ethics or what pulled you into this field? Where were you? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the early part of my career, I was much more focused on cognitive science and the early days of machine learning. So really trying to think about how we could use computational models to learn more about the world, but also to learn more about how humans learn about the world. So how do we get inspiration from what people can solve to come up with new machine learning methods and vice versa? And through the course of that work, I found myself increasingly wondering, this would have been about 2012, wondering whether every use that I was seeing of machine learning was actually a good one. So I decided to do what any good academic would do. I went and read, and I read the literature and said, okay, there's got to be work out there that can help somebody who's actively engaged in trying to do machine learning to do it in a more ethical way, in a more principled way. And what I found was actually that it was very hard to find very much that was out there that was not either super theoretical or something that clearly didn't engage with the real-world practice. So I would find ethicists saying things like, if a machine can learn, then it can never be predicted, and so therefore it cannot be ethical. And I'm thinking to myself, well, no, that's, that's not right. I mean, there's lots of learning systems that we know what they're going to do once we know what kind of data they're going to see. Or somebody would say something effective, we don't need to worry about ethics. We just need people to think hard about what they want to have happen and predict what will happen, and then we'll be fine. And I'm thinking to myself, I study cognitive science. Humans are not very good at figuring out what's going to happen or what even they are going to want to have happen in the future. So it all led me to think that there was room for somebody who had a background in machine learning and 
cognitive science and ethics and philosophy, because that was actually where my PhD was in. And so sort of came to it that way, thinking here's a place where maybe I can contribute a little bit. I thought I would write a paper or two and then be done with it and instead discovered just an enormous wealth of fascinating problems that have real world impact and sort of have been hooked and have been doing this for about a decade now. And I want to explore how these fields intersect because to me, if I look from the outside at the fields of philosophy, neuroscience, and machine learning that you've mentioned all of those, then it looks as though superficially they don't. I think of philosophers sitting around debating Kant and the coming up with trolley problem. I think about neuroscientists conducting behavioral experiments and looking at models of neurons. I think of machine learning experts talking about cluster analysis and k-means algorithms and things like that. And were you, when you were working on machine learning in the computer science end of it or on the more public-facing side, for instance, does that help us understand how those intersect if we think that they don't? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the way I think about it is the following. So let's take what we might think of as kind of the input side. So the world is this messy, complicated place that we have to somehow make sense of. And in philosophy, we have a whole subfield called epistemology that's about theory of knowledge, it's about what we could ever come to know and understand about the world around us. And a lot of psychology is about human learning. And of course, machine learning is about how we can use data and prior information to understand the world. So in some sense, I think of all three of these, on the one hand, as aspects of epistemology. Philosophy is the highly theoretical way of thinking about learning and knowledge. Psychology and cognitive science are the very descriptive ways. What is it we humans actually do? And machine learning is the sort of practical, how can this be done in the real world with real data? And then, in fact, we can also think about the exact same thing once we've learned something about the world. So we can think about why do we do machine learning? Well, in part, it's to learn things so that we can make our world presumably a better place or a place where we make more money or whatever it may exactly be. But so we want to do machine learning so that we can act in the world. And a large amount of cognitive science and neuroscience is about action and behavior. And in philosophy, I think a lot of ethics is really fundamentally asking questions about what we ought to do, given the things that matter to us, given our values. So both on the sort of learning and knowledge side and on the action and behavior side, we see, I think, that these three different disciplines give us three different perspectives on the same core problem. A more theoretical perspective from philosophy, a more human-centric approach from cognitive science, and a more practical approach from machine learning and AI. Now, it seems to me that there's a, this stage, this point in time, there's a huge amount of focus on AI ethics. I mean, certainly on this show, we've had a lot of people who describe themselves as philosophers who are working in that field. Stuart Russell, who was just on the show, said that his inbox is overflowing with invitations to symposia about AI ethics in, in one sense or another. Do you feel that this is actually now getting a crowded field at the moment? And is this research coordinated between the people who are in it, or is it everyone for himself? So I think it is definitely a booming area. I think the space of people who have been working at the frontiers for a few years is a smaller one, and I think many of us know each other and can collaborate from there. But I do think that there's a real hunger right now to understand more about the ethical implications of the technologies that 
we're building, whether you're a member of society or you're an AI researcher or you're a policymaker, I think a lot of people have come to understand that technology is not value neutral. It's not just a tool where all of the ethics comes in after it's been built. There are really serious questions we have to ask about how we build technology, what questions we're asking as we do that. And so I think there's a lot of people looking to understand more. And academics are not great at getting the word out about the work that we do. And so I think that that's actually contributed to some of the challenges is that you have companies, you have policymakers who are looking for help and not always finding it. And so with that, I think it's important for all of us working in this space who have been developing practices, have been developing theories, have been developing answers to some of these questions to find ways to get them out to the people who are crowding in looking for help. Because I don't think it's crowded because people are saying, ooh, that's trendy. If I go there, I'll get a job. Or something. I think people are coming because these are really deep, serious societal problems and issues, and they're looking for help. And now we're talking about the public here, and that gets into the question of public perception of AI. And as you were alluding to there, academics can have this reputation of, well, I'm going to come down from on high and deliver the tablets, and here's my wisdom, now I'm going to go back up, good luck. But you write and talk a lot about regulation, so that's about changing public behavior. And so public perception has to be a part of that. You can't get regulation or a change passed unless it's within the sphere of what people consider acceptable. And misperceptions of AI are rampant among the media at the moment. The moment you start talking about risks of AI or even artificial general intelligence as a thing, you're a soundbite on a show and they're running a picture of the Terminator behind you and, you know, you've got 30 seconds and it's not going to work. So to what extent do those beliefs out there impede your efforts to promote change, regulation and ethics is this something where you find you need to address that before you can do what you want? Without a doubt, yes. I confess most of the public talks I give, I will have, even if it's only five or 10 seconds, I always make sure to point out that AI is actually much more banal and prosaic than most people think it is. And part of the problem, I think it's reasonable that people don't quite know what AI is. On the one hand, as you said, they see Terminator. They see the agents in the Matrix movies. But then there's the companies that say they're using AI when what they're doing is basically a simple linear model in an Excel file. And yet that's AI in some sense because, well, we're using data. And so I think that it's entirely reasonable that the public is sort of confused about what this word is because it's been stretched almost beyond recognition. I mean, I think it's notable that I don't really know anyone who is an, as it were, AI researcher who would self-describe that way when talking to other people in the field. You're, you do computer vision or you do planning algorithms or you do machine learning. AI is much more a thing people talk about in the public. And so there is a lot of education that has to occur. There's a lot of work that has to be done I think helping people to understand what AI is and what it is also not right now capable of doing, or that we should have reason to worry that it's not going to be able to do these things in the near future. For example, around the ability of AI systems to understand complex contextual cues or to be able to engage in sophisticated analogical reasoning. Right now, these are areas that AI systems are really struggling. You know, we're struggling as a field to be able to succeed at those. 
So the challenge then becomes, how do we do that? Personally, I don't think my skill set is to go be a popularizer. I don't want to spend my days trying to help people just understand what AI is and what it is not. At the same time, I think it's important that every time I or any of us who work in this field engage with the public, that we recognize where they are and speak to the concerns and beliefs that folks have, even if part of the work then is, okay, we need to help people understand better. I think that's particularly notable. You mentioned the issue of regulation. And I think it's particularly important when we're looking at conversations with regulators or policymakers or lawmakers to recognize that many of them have other expertise. And so they may be coming to the discussion with not quite the right framing and to basically not just say you're thinking about it wrong, but to say, and here's the right frame. And I think there are ways of doing that. And if we can, we can start to have people see that AI really can be transformative in positive ways. We're not forced into a dystopia, but it's going to take real work. To talk about regulation in healthcare, which is something you've written on, the subject of AI trustworthiness in, in healthcare as an application. And I've got to mention here something that came out of a talk I was doing last night where a participant described how in a hospital near her, the children that were patients there were given robots, some kind of pet-like robot, to interact with them because the nurses were too busy to spend enough time with them, and which infuriated me that it is exactly backwards. The AI should be being used to do the boring parts of the nurse's job, and I got angry about that. But to riff from that onto the U.S. healthcare system, we can see, if we compare that with nationally managed systems in other countries, that we can end up with results that almost no one would think is optimal. And yet the environment is this collection of self-reinforcing systems that conspire to maintain it that way, even though other places can do it differently. How should AI regulation in the healthcare sphere adjust to reflect the different environment that the different countries have when they can be that far apart? Yeah, well, I think an important thing is for any regulation having to do with healthcare to think about the ways in which we can safely navigate what is obviously a very high consequence space. Getting things wrong with healthcare regulation, I mean, it literally can lead to people losing their lives. And so we need to be really thoughtful about how we do that. And I think the big key here is, as you said, to recognize that AI, for all the ways in which it is a quote-unquote disruptor, AI is not going to, you know, in one fell swoop, disrupt the entire U.S. healthcare system. For the simple reason there are just too many parties, too many actors, all of whom have their own interests. And of course, AI is not some single monolithic thing. AI is, you know, a system that does better diagnosis of skin cancer, plus a system for scheduling the nurse working shifts, plus a system for financial accounting, plus, you know, it's all of these things. And so we shouldn't expect it to change things in one fell swoop. So I think what we need to do is we need to have regulations that are tuned to the local context, which in the U.S. is going to be a smaller context, perhaps, than a national system, such as in Canada. But the sense in which it needs to be tuned to the context is to recognize that when we deploy an AI system, it often doesn't go the way we think it's going to. And it might not go that way because the system actually just performs not as well as we hoped. It might be as simple as 
the humans not liking the system. We're not wanting to use the system. We're responding in unusual ways. So I think the message then for a regulator, a policymaker, is we should not expect that we're going to be able to introduce AI in a regulated manner where we can sort of set everything up ahead of time. So box checking in general is a really bad way to approach AI regulation, or more precisely, performance standards, being able to say ahead of time, here are the operating characteristics that are required for the system to be used appropriately and successfully. We're almost never actually able to specify those kinds of conditions in an interesting way for an AI system. I mean, a self-driving car, we want it to drive safely. Well, what does that mean? Well, depending on the context, that can take many forms. What do we want a doctor to do? We want a doctor to care for our health and help us live the lives we want to live in terms of our own personal health and well-being. Well, what does that mean? Well, it might mean something different for, say, somebody who is a musician. And so fine motor control is much more important for them than somebody who might have a different profession. And so we need this kind of context sensitivity that AI, as I mentioned earlier, is struggling with, which means our regulations need to be much more dynamic and adaptive. So whether it's in Canada or here in the U.S., I think that as AI systems are getting deployed, what we really need to do is we need to do it slowly and iteratively. We need to approach the problem roughly similarly to the way we actually approach, say, pharmaceuticals, drugs. We should think carefully about, well, we'll use the AI in this narrow context and we'll learn from that narrow deployment under a doctor's supervision, as it were, and then slowly, gradually expand. So in some ways, I actually think that the risk of problematic healthcare AI is bigger in a place with a national system, precisely because in one move, you could actually suddenly have a system deployed nationally without necessarily, unless the right processes are in place, without having the ability to sort of learn through the initial stages of the deployment. Now, don't get me wrong, there are enormous problems with the U.S. healthcare system. I'm not advocating that in many ways. But I think one of the few advantages it has is that when things go wrong, they are often sometimes contained. What I hear here is the underlying theme is that you're looking for where are the knobs, as it were, that you can adjust or that you can tell people how to adjust that will make the deployment of this technology, the infusion of this technology safer for people, improve their lives and make it more trustworthy. And the most obvious knob is regulation, but it's not perhaps the only one. If we look, for instance, at what's happened with social media, Algorithms in TikTok, YouTube, Facebook have arguably broken society. I don't think it's irresponsible to put that label on it as a shorthand. And that was a result of a bug because no one intended those consequences. It was just trying to draw eyeballs. And I don't think anyone would have anticipated that from a regulatory standpoint. They're still trying to figure out what sort of regulation they should attach to it. So are you involved with looking at how market forces and incentives can accomplish the sort of results you're looking for? Yes. So I think that you're exactly right that in many cases, market forces play a much bigger role than regulation. Social norms often play a bigger role than law and regulation. And we may want to come back to that when we think about social norms amongst the people who build these kinds of systems and what are the right social norms for the developers. I think that 
as you point out, in some sense, the ways in which nobody intended for YouTube, Facebook, TikTok to, to have the truly devastating effects that they have had. But in another sense, people saw this coming. There were a lot of people who pointed out very early on that when algorithms are driven solely by what people click, that is going to lead to polarization. That's going to lead towards a sort of race to the bottom in the sense that the more extreme I can be, the more that I'm going to get people to share and click this. So that was actually something people pointed out very early on. There were some people, but not many, who I think saw it could get this bad. But it isn't as though this wasn't foreseeable. But from the company's perspective, they said, look, we're making a lot of money. It isn't devastating yet. So let's keep on this path and we'll just, you know, we can always pull it back later. And I think what we've seen is that that line got crossed without being pulled back. Now, you raise a great question about market forces. And I think we have sometimes people who say, look, folks are, they vote with their wallet or their attention and an attention economy. And what they've done is they've shown that what they care about is extreme or polarizing material. So, you know, maybe that's just what we ought to do. You can't do ethics. You can't do things that are, you know, good just out of the goodness of your heart. You have to make people pay for it. And no one ever pays for those things. I don't actually have a whole lot of patience, I confess, for that argument. Because I think we've got a really interesting counterexample. It's not necessarily exactly for ethics, but uh, we have an interesting counterexample in the form of the design price premium that Apple has been able to charge for their products for a decade now. Apple has made an enormous amount of money not because their hardware is that much better than somebody else's, not because their software is that much better, but because it is well-designed. And because of that design benefit, they charge more than their competitors do, and they make more money as a result. And they've been able to build a kind of impregnable, in some ways, ecosystem as a result of it. And so what we see there is we see that people will pay for good design. They'll pay for a product that enables them to do what they want. And so the question is, when we think about values and ethics, we start to see a similar sort of story. If you produce a system that enables me to achieve the things I actually care about, not the, you know, binging on M&Ms thing that Facebook can sometimes be, but if you enable me to actually achieve things that matter to me, there's a long history of people paying a price premium for that. In the marketing literature, trust is the holy grail. That is what every marketer says you should be trying to build for your brand. If you're a trusted brand, you can charge a lot more money. And how do you get to be a trusted brand? You're a trusted brand when you support the values and interests that matter to your customers. And so I think that there's a lot of ways in which there are good market force arguments for the possibility that more ethical AI, more ethical technology could be quite lucrative for folks. The challenge we run into right now, especially in the space of things like Facebook and other social networking systems, is that these platforms are so big that you can't launch a serious competitor that's going to try and take advantage of building their name on trust. And so I think that's where market forces start to run aground, is when you have functional monopolies, when you have the pressures of the benefits of network effects, where everyone's on Facebook because everyone's on Facebook, or everyone's on Twitter because everyone's on Twitter, those are really hard forces to overcome. You don't have the normal competitions. And so I think what we need is we need to find ways to move towards a situation that we can actually have 
as it were, the market competition. Uh, because I'm optimistic that companies that do ethics the right way, that think about their customers' values, they're going to see the benefit. This is another two-parter. So that's the end of part one. David talked about his background in philosophy. We've had several philosophers on the show now. I would never have imagined interacting this much with philosophers back when I was taking a computer science degree. Philosophy and artificial intelligence are so interrelated today because artificial intelligence has the potential to raise many philosophical questions. For example, if a computer can be said to have a mind, what is the nature of that mind? What implications does the existence of artificial intelligence have for our understanding of the human mind? These are just a few of the questions that philosophers are currently grappling with in relation to artificial intelligence. So you may remember that on some previous shows, I've talked about programs like GPT-3 and variations on it that can write creatively. And I told you that I hadn't used them to write any of my show, but I would let you know when I did. I just did. That last paragraph was written by a new AI from OpenAI called InstructGPT. It's now a model in their GPT-3 AI. But what makes it noteworthy is that, whereas before you had to give GPT-3 some examples of what you wanted and it would catch your drift and then continue in the same vein, this model will respond to a direct request and carry out your instruction. In this case, all I said to it was, tell my listeners why philosophy and artificial intelligence are so interrelated today. And you heard the result. So I wasn't going to stop there. Then I said, write a paragraph for a podcast about the ethical obligations of artificial intelligence developers to mitigate disinformation on public platforms. It began its response with, AI developers have a responsibility to create technology that mitigates the spread of disinformation on public platforms. Okay, that's a bit like a ninth grader responding to an essay assignment by repeating the question, but it gets better. It went on, Quote, by building systems that can identify and isolate bots and fake accounts, they can help to ensure that information shared on social media is accurate and truthful. It is their responsibility to create technology that protects the integrity of our democracy and safeguards the public's trust in social media. They need to be transparent in their work and ensure that their algorithms are not being used to spread misinformation. They also need to be aware of the biases in their algorithms and take steps to correct them. By being responsible and ethical developers, they can help ensure that artificial intelligence is used for the benefit of society as a whole, end quote. Not bad, huh? And it's not just repeating things that it found altogether on some web page, like a Google search, as you can see in a moment, because then I said, write a poem about love and mathematics. And it came up with one, complete with line breaks and stanza breaks. Here it is. Love is a mystery a complex equation that we are still trying to solve. It's like a deep and dark abyss that we can never quite comprehend. But still, we keep trying because we are desperate to understand what this thing called love is and why it makes us feel so alive. Mathematics is precise, a world of hard facts and logic. But even in this domain, love can never be fully explained. For love is an irrational force that defies all our laws of nature. It's a quirk of the universe that we can never quite predict. But that's what makes it so special and so unique. It's the one thing that we can never take for granted. And just like mathematics, love is full of surprises. It can be beautiful and joyful, but it can also be heartbreaking. But through it all, we keep learning, we keep growing, and we keep hoping that one day we will finally understand what love is really all about. 
that's the end of the poem. I also asked it to write a limerick, which came out with some racy language, as you might expect, so not repeating it here. It didn't rhyme completely. I also asked it to make up a haiku about hedgehogs, and it missed a couple of syllables. But, you know, griping about that is like the joke about the man who sees a talking dog. It goes like this. He sees the dog advertised for sale, so he goes to the house, and the owner says the dog is in the backyard. So he finds the dog there and says, do you talk? And the dog says, yep, sure do. And after he gets over the shock, he asks the dog for its story, and the dog says, well, after I found out that I could talk, I was recruited by the CIA and spent several years spying for them in Russia and China because no one would suspect a dog was a spy, right? So the man goes back to the owner and says, how much for the dog? And the owner says, $10. And the man is incredulous and says, 10 bucks? Why so cheap? And the owner says, because he's a liar. He's never been out of the yard. Now, there are still flaws, of course. I had to find that joke myself because when I asked InstructGPT to tell me a joke about a talking dog, it asked me, why did the chicken cross the road? You can also see the ragged edge show up when I asked, what are three advantages for a country to compete in the Olympics? And it gave me a numbered list as follows. One, increased tourism. Two, increased revenue from television rights. Three, increased exposure for the country's athletes. But those, of course, are reasons for a country to host the Olympics, not to compete in them. Still, to complain about that seems churlish. It's amazing that you can tell it what you want and it will, in some sense, understand that and give it to you. That was a surprise. And that's the news ripped from today's headlines about AI. Next week, we'll finish the interview with David when we'll talk about how AI and algorithms have created social damage through reckless use on social media platforms legal ramifications of the positions the providers of those platforms have taken, and David's taxonomy of algorithmic biases. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control, and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.